Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. Many of you know that my laboratory works on um, trying to understand genetic pathways and pathophysiological mechanisms for human neurogenetic diseases. And we focus on developmental diseases. I'm a trained pediatrician and, and medical geneticist. And I'm sure that has some influence, but I think I got together doing development and those clinical specialties because of my overall interest in development, and I still do see patients. Uh, When I started my lab, uh, we were exclusively using mouse models because at the time, mouse was a great model system. It was a mammalian system where you could use ES cells and do manipulations of any genes that you wanted to and create models, a mammalian model, of a human genetic disorder and study the effects of that in a living, breathing, behaving organism. Uh, Of course, with uh, being here and and then at UCSF, I jumped on the the stem cell, the human stem cell bandwagon because what's missing in mice is that there's some developmental processes and pathways that are different in the human. And also, of course, uh, if one wants to do drug screening, as Evan alluded to, you really need to do it in human uh, uh, samples. Uh, so that you can actually get drugs that work on the human proteins themselves. So we started doing this about 10 years ago. And uh, so what I'm going to talk about today is our efforts to use both mouse and uh, IPS models of a complex disorder called autism, which you all know about. And the complexity uh, is sometimes daunting, but in, in using both of those models, a living, behaving organism and a human system, I think we can come up with some commonalities, at least in some Uh, forms of autism that uh, we hope provide some insight into this very terrible disorder. Well, the the, uh, story that I'm going to tell starts with the Shevold gene family. And this actually preceded the time that I had my own lab. I was in in Phil Eater's lab at at Department of Genetics in Boston, and Norbert Perryman was cloning a number of developmentally important genes in the known developmental pathways in fruit flies. And one of the ones he cloned was disheveled, or as Norbert would call it, if you know Norbert, disheveled. And uh, it's not misspelled, actually. That's the way the gene is spelled. But you shouldn't spell it that way if you're writing any other, any other manuscript. And disheveled was part of, again, at that time, uh, what we thought was a well-defined pathway of five components. So the ligand was known. The, uh, the receptors weren't known. Disheveled, uh, GSK3, and beta-catenin. And that was a well-defined pathway. And so my, our goal in starting this project was to see if we could use disheveled, where we knew a pathway was involved, to look at developmental mechanisms with a pathway focus. So now, of course, uh, the wind pathway involves many more than five genes, and this just gives an overview of two different pathways that disheveled participates in. One of them is the canonical wind pathway, where in the absence of wind, uh, uh, the wind ligand, GSK3 phosphorylates... Um, phosphorylates uh, beta-catenin, causing its degradation of proteasome. But in the presence of wind ligand, which binds to the co-receptors frizzled and LRP5-6, the sheveled recruits the destruction complex to the membrane, removing the GSK3 phosphorylation, beta-catenin accumulates, goes to the nucleus, changes transcription, and that then results in changes in cell fate specification and predominantly embryogenesis, what we study. There's another pathway that, uh, that Shovel is involved, and very similar in that wints bind to other frizzles. These are different wints. There are 20 different wint genes at least, and 12 frizzles. So a different combination of wints and frizzles results, again, in disheveled 
modulating intracellular pathways that now are important for cell polarity and migration and tissue patterning. So disheveled plays this key role that we thought would be important. And so there were three disheveled genes, and my colleague Dan Sussman, who was in Phil's lab at the time, cloned the three mouse genes. And we thought that if we were going to study disheveled, it was likely they would have uh, redundant functions. So we thought if we were going to study this family, we needed to knock out all three genes. So I'm going to take a little bit of a diversion for a minute and tell you about some of those studies. So uh, being a, a, a logically oriented group, we knocked out one, two, and three and studied them in that order as single gene knockouts. And although there is redundant phenotypes, which I'll show you in a minute, we were fortunate that the single gene knockouts also had interesting phenotypes in their own right. And, and they were all different phenotypes. So for disheveled one, there was a unique social behavior phenotype that I'll tell you about in a few minutes. Disheveled two knockouts in an inbred background, 100% of the mice had a somite abnormality that resulted in vertebral and, ver and uh, rib abnormalities. But 50% of the mice in an inbred genetic background had a conotruncal defect. And only 2% had a, a, a spina bifida, a neural tube defect. So even in a completely genetically controlled environment, the shovel 2 wasn't sufficient to cause a fully penetrant phenotype for some of these uh, abnormalities. Uh, and then when we knocked out the shovel 3, the single gene knockout, now 100% of the mice had conotruncal defects. And they also had a polarity defect in the inner ear. Uh, when we made the double knockouts, it revealed the, some of the redundancy. Uh, one, three double mutants, I'm also going to talk about those in a moment, had a more, slightly more severe phenotype that led us into uh, studying parts of the brain development. But the one, two double knockouts now had a very severe neural tube defect with 100% penetrance, 100% penetrant um, conotruncal defect, disheveled uh, uh, Two, uh, two, three double mutants had axial abnormalities and the, the neural tube defects, as well as uh, uh, now also had inner ear defects as the shovel three mutants. And the triple mutants, we've just been studying now, and one of my graduate students, uh, uh, Justine No, is studying this in a little bit more detail, and the triple knockouts have, uh, uh, they fail to gastrulate. So this is also a collaboration with Hiroshi Yamada's group and Masakazu Hashimoto. Here's a, a day seven and a half mouse embryo. It's after implantation and stained with brachiuri shows the primitive streak uh, and the developing mesoderm in, the, in this wild type embryo. And the triple mutants on the other end have no uh, mesoderm and no brachiuri staining, completely devoid of that. They have an axis here. You can see what looks like maybe head folds, but uh, totally undifferentiated. And so Justine's been studying these in uh, embryonic stem cells, and for those uh, who may be interested, I know I get a lot of requests for, can, do you have any triple knockout um, ESL uh, uh, cells in general that one can study signaling? And it's been very difficult to make triple mutants in a single mating, uh, and that's why it took us so long to find this phenotype. But we do now have triple knockout uh, ESLs that Justine's made. And actually what's interesting is they maintain their ESL character. They still don't make mesoderm, and Justine's used these cells to use an in vitro model to try to figure out uh, more about uh, the role in early embryonic development. But uh, again, for anyone who's interested in a triple knockout, we now have such cells, and they're available uh, once Justine publishes the paper. So just let me know if you're interested. So the shoveled is a, is a multifunctional, redundant family. Um, but I'm, I'm here to tell you about autism today, and how did we get into autism? Well, the reason we got into it was because of the disheveled one mutants. And this was the, the uh, as I said, the first disheveled that we studied. And so we really studied it in detail. 
uh, Nardos Lijam and Rich Paler were looking in, in detail at uh, adult, organism, adult animals, embryonic animals, and found absolutely no differences in any of the tissues, including the brains of these uh, homozygous knockout mice. They seemed to have normal fertility. Uh, they had normal lifespan. They didn't get cancer. So everything was normal about them. We thought perhaps there'd be a brain abnormality, so we wanted to do behavioral testing. And so when we did behavioral testing of these mice, we, it's probably not the right thing to do, but I'm glad that we did it. We kept all of the mice in uniform genotype cages, so all uh, wild-type genotype cages or homozygous knockout genotype cages. And in the old days, this, probably don't use this anymore, but we used these ear tags that had numbers on them so that we could differentiate each mouse before we tested them. And so every time the mouse, mouse was being studied for behavioral testing, they had to uh, Nardos and Rich had to look at their faces and determine what their ear tag number was. And what happened after a period of time as they were doing this, they were saying, boy, there's something different with these mice. And they really couldn't figure it out, but then they did figure it out. And what was different was, here you can see that wild-type mice, um, uh, most of them had no whiskers and facial hair, which was kind of surprising. But all of the disheveled one knockout mice caged as a uniform genotype had full whiskers and facial hair. So we videotaped these mice, and I'd recommend uh, mouse videotaping behavior for anybody that has insomnia, because it is quite... And then you actually, we actually, uh, this is before there were a lot of more sophisticated tests, and we just tried to look to see what our gestalt was about their, with their behavior. And it seemed like everything was normal, with the exception of their interaction with each other. So we looked in the literature, and it turns out there was one paper on social barbering. And uh, an individual studied about two dozen mouse strains and found that three mouse strains had social barbering. That is, put mice in a cage, the dominant mouse in that cage would either barber the other mice or allow the other mice to barber each other. And it happened in three out of about two dozen mouse lines. And in general, that's an indication that, um, that there's probably a genetic component to it as well. And so with that as, as, uh, as a background, we tried to figure out tests that would uh, allow us to determine whether or not this was a social behavior uh, phenotype. So what Nardos and Rich did is they took about a dozen cages, and in each cage they took one mouse who was, homo was wild type and had no whiskers and facial hair, and one mouse that had full whiskers and facial hair and was, double, uh, was disheveled one knockout, and looked at their phenotype. And what happened was the disheveled mice all lost their whiskers, the wild type mice all grew their whiskers back in two weeks. Now put those mice back in their original cages, the wild-type mice with full whiskers lose them again, and the disheveled one knockout gain them back again. Sort of the mouse whisker-trimming crossover study for any geneticist in the audience. And so that, uh, you know, that's probably an abnormal behavior similar to um, uh, biting your fingernails or, or picking your, your skin or things like that. But they actually did have some other abnormal behaviors that we saw in the videotape, and that was that they didn't sleep together huddled as wild-type mice did, but slept together a little bit more disheveled, I guess you could say. And they didn't cooperate as a group to build these nice fluffy nests out of tissue paper wafers. So they seem to have real social behavior abnormalities. So we published the paper in the late 90s, and uh, we thought it might be a model for, multiple, uh, for a number of neuropsychiatric disorders, but this was the time when that was actually the first model of a of social behavior in any organism. So we were a little bit lost of what to do. And as I said, we had no brain abnormalities. But we thought autism might be a potential model. And, and, and uh, so I'll just tell you how we got into that in just a second. But before I do, let me tell you a little bit about uh, autism. As you all know, it's a group of neurodevelopmental disorders. 
prevalence is rising over time and now is about one in 60 uh, in the latest uh, uh, CDC uh, incidence uh, ratings. The core symptoms are uh, uh, the restricted repetitive behaviors, limited social interaction with communication difficulties. It's a heterogeneous disease which makes it difficult to study It's heterogeneous in its genetics. There's a number of environmental causes, and these probably interact. There's a difference in the severity of the core symptoms, and there's certainly variability in the comorbidities that are associated with uh, with autism. But one of those comorbidities was uh, uh, increased uh, early brain overgrowth, uh, uh, macrocephaly. It occurs in about 20% of patients. And that was a phenotype that uh, that I learned about here at UCSD. Eric Corshane was one of the first to demonstrate that when looking at either head circumference or in MRIs of children that were at risk of autism, uh, many of the autistic patients had increased brain size compared to normal, typically developing controls. And it happened in the first three years of life. And again, this is about 20% of patients. And at that point, there's several possible um, things that could happen to those children. One was they, they would, the brains would go back to the normal size. In some cases, they'd continue to expand. In other cases, might even be macrocephalic or, or microcephalic at later time periods. Over the years, then, Eric, and this was a 2011 study, uh, actually took postmortem samples and counted the number of neurons that were in the prefrontal cortex. And what he found was there was an increase in neurons in patients that had early brain overgrowth and autism. And that's strong evidence that this is something that occurs prenatal. And there's a lot of evidence now that mid-gestation fetal life is the time where uh, autism has its origins. And that then points to an abnormality in neurogenesis. And that being the case, we thought that this was something that we could study perhaps uh, uh, with hypothesis-driven experiments in the mouse and the human. And so what we tried to do was to use both our mouse model and uh, induced pluripotent stem cell model of patients that had early brain overgrowth. Um, and uh, some of these studies, so, uh, you know, Allison said I, that some of the work we do is, is well done. Well, that's because we collaborate with people like Allison. So uh, we did work together on, on these, uh, these cells along with, uh, with Rusty Gage's lab, uh, particularly Carol Marchetto. Uh, and, but the person in my lab that did the work uh, and f- uh, put these, both of these models together is Heim Bellinson, and he's now a scientist at Teva Pharmaceuticals in Israel. So what Heim wanted to do is he said, well, you know, maybe the one the disheveled one mutants have no, no abnormalities, but maybe it's because of the redundancy. So let me look at some other compound mutants. And so he looked at the disheveled one homozygous, three heterozygous mice. And by this point now, we have a little bit more of a sophisticated analysis of social behavior. And one of those uh, uh, things is to use the three-chamber social approach. And this was developed by Jackie Crawley, one of my collaborators on the initial uh, disheveled uh, work. And what uh, Jackie developed was uh, uh, three chambers where in one chamber you would have a wire cage with a mouse in it, and another you would have a wire cage that was either empty or had an object in it. You would then place a mouse in the middle of the, of the cage where it had trap doors, open the doors, and give the mouse equal access to the other chambers. And what would happen is if the mouse was social, they would spend more time investigating the mouse than they would the object because they're interested in finding out if there's any threat from that mouse. And um, let's see if I can turn this on. In the movie itself, the top is a mouse in a three-chambered approach with a mouse in the left side and with uh, an object in in the right side. And in this bottom one, there's a mouse with no object or mouse at all. So 
what happens? Well, the mice freely go to each chamber. The mouse explores the, the cup with the mouse much more than the mouse on the bottom, which is just randomly exploring the three chambers. And so if you just look at how a mouse behaves in the three-chamber social approach with the mouse, you calculate how much time they spend with the mouse or the side with the object. And usually it's direct nose-to-nose interaction. And social mice will have statistically significant more time, spend significantly more time with the mouse than with the object. And both the shoveled one and one three mutants are defective in that, and so they have social interaction abnormalities. And so then Heim said, well, based on the, the, the brain overgrowth model, maybe there's an embryonic time when the disheveled mice might have differences. And so what Heim did was systematically look in all the mutants at times throughout development from day nine and a half to, to, to birth, which is about 21 days. And what he found was, particularly at E14.5, the disheveled 1-3 mutant mice, but none of the other genotypes, had an increased uh, brain weight. And by the time they were at E16, and certainly at birth, that brain weight was now back to normal. So by sectioning those, those brains, and this is coronal sections through the mice, this would be the cortex up here, and this would be the ventral side, I think you can see that the, the cortical plate is enlarged, the ne- there's neocortical overgrowth in the wild type versus the mutant, the thickness is more. And, and uh, this was associated with increased, uh, uh, with a change in wind signaling, a decrease in wind signaling which might, one might predict, we were thinking this might be the case with the disheveled mutants. And this is a top flash assay where we took neural progenitor cells from wild type and 1-3 mutants and just looked first of all to see what the wind signaling was in the luciferase assay. And there is a reduction of basal wind signaling in the double mutants. This could be corrected by a lithium chloride, which is a GSK3 inhibitor, downstream of disheveled but it could not be completely corrected with WIN3A, which is upstream of disheveled, suggesting that this was a disheveled-mediated effect. That's in vitro. This is in vivo, looking again at E14.5 using a BATGAL model, which is a beta-galactosidase stimulated by wind signaling. And you can see that in the wild type, the BATGAL activity is high. And although the disheveled mutants are somewhat variable, it was consistently reduced. And so it it suggests that there's a difference uh, reduced wind signaling uh, both in vivo and in vitro. Now, many of you know uh, about mouse neocortical development, but for the next few slides, I'll just give you a brief uh, summary. The progenitor cells in the mouse are predominantly the radial glial progenitor cells, and they stretch from the ventral, ventricular side, which is the apical surface, to the peel surface outside uh, uh, completely. And they divide symmetrically to make more progenitors. When they divide asymmetrically, they can either directly make neurons or mostly they produce these intermediate progenitors that are TBR2 positive. And when they make these uh, intermediate progenitors, they then divide once or twice to make postmitotic neurons that migrate up the radioglia and then set up shop in an inside-out fashion as mature neurons. So the firstborn neurons are the deep-layer neurons, and the later-born neurons become more superficial. That's how development occurs. So Heim then looked first in the ventricular zone to see if there was any increase or differences in the cell number there. And what he found was, again, only at embryonic day 14.5, there was an increase in the number of TBR2-positive intermediate progenitors and SOX2-TBR2-double-positive progenitors. So there seemed to be an expansion of these intermediate progenitors in, in the mice. And looking more carefully, then at E14.5, he used some of the deep-layer markers, such as CTIP2, 
which is expressed at 14.5, and there seemed to be an increase in the number of CTIP2 positive cells that will become eventually the deep layer neurons of layer 5 and some in layer 6. At later time points, at 16.5, the number of CTIP2 neurons now appears to be normalizing, and the number of, of more superficial neurons marked by CUX1 are uh, uh, in the proper place in uh, the pro- approximately normal numbers, although there could be a slight reduction. Fortunately for us, when we were here, we were doing a lot of collaborations with Jeff Rosenfeld, and so we had a marker for one of their transcription factors that marked layers two, uh, two three, and five in mice, and it was called brain two, a transcription factor, a POW domain transcription factor. So we, uh, Haim used those, uh, that marker and found that layer fi- 5 and layer 2-3 were marked well in E16.5 uh, brains in wild type, but in the double mutants, it was virtually gone, even though the, the two, layers 2-3 uh, and 5 are present in those mice, suggested that maybe brain 2 was a downstream target of beta-catenin. So using uh, neural progenitor cultures, first of all, Heim found that the double mutant neural progenitors proliferated more rapidly, and they also had a reduction in brain 2 in those cells. And uh, so we, we collaborated with Jeff's group and got his brain 2 knockout mice. And homozygous brain 2 knockouts phenocopy the disheveled 1-3 phenotype. That is, thickening of the cortical plate, increased number of TBR2 positive cells, and increased production of the deep layer cortical neurons. Uh, and this is just quantified over here. Uh, uh, here. But uh, the homozygous mutants are embryonic lethal, so we used heterozygous mice and found that, in fact, they display social interaction deficits similar to disheveled knockout mice. So it seems that the brain 2 mutant mice phenocopy the 1-3 mutants. And then overexpressing brain 2 would rescue the phenotype in vitro by the proliferation phenotype. So how could we prove that this was, in fact, an embryonic phenotype? Well, we wished we had genetic (coughs) tools to do this, but we didn't. And we still don't have them for the 1-3 double mutants. So Heim uh, decided to use uh, CHIR-99021, which I will call CHIR from now on. It is a Chiron-developed, more specific GSK3 inhibitor uh, uh, to see if we could rescue the phenotype. And what Heim decided to do was if if he could inject pregnant females that would have wild-type and disheveled mutant mice uh, between embryonic day 9.5 and and 14.5 daily, with an appropriate dose of cheer, could he rescue the brain overgrowth and the social behavior phenotype? And so when he did that experiment, it, uh, the 1-3 mutant uh, uh, cortical expansion was rescued, looking at embryos, and another cohort treated in exactly the same way during a fetal life and tested for social behavior abnormalities now had rescued social behavior abnormalities. So there's two points to make there. I think this really emphasizes that this phenotype the, the, the uh, adult social behavior phenotype is likely caused by something that's happening in fetal life, very consistent with what we know from autism. But the second thing to point out for the future, and I'm not going to talk really much more about it now, it, 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 it gives a proof of principle for how might one correct, how one might think about correcting such abnormalities during fetal life. And even though this is just a mouse, it's really only limited by technology and safety uh, issues to consider how this might happen in humans. By, we're not doing any of that, just so you know. But I'm just saying it provides proof of, proof of principle. And in addition, we could then use uh, uh, MRI and fractional uh, anisotropy to look at brain structures in the adult mice of disheveled one 
uh, 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 mock-treated and wild-type mock-treated uh, mice to see what the brain abnormalities were different between those two. And using uh, M- standard MRI, there were 21 out of 159 regions that we could quantify that were different in the disheveled one mutant mice. When we used um, a, frac- uh, a fractional anisotropy to look at tracks, 68 of 159 regions that we could quantify were different. By we, this is uh, Jason Lurch in Toronto as a, uh, doing this collaboratively. And then taking the, the disheveled one cheer-treated mice with a, a wild-type mock-treated mice, six of the 21 regions were now rescued. And what's important to note is that some of the regions that were abnormal between the two actually are regions that we, you would expect to be present uh, from layer five abnormalities. There would be a reduction then in, in uh, white and gray matter from uh, layer five, in particular, primary motor cortex, sensory, somatosensory cortex, and the frontal association cortex. And these were rescued by treatment with cheer in terms of their abnormalities. So again, suggesting that these this phenotype that we're seeing in the mice actually is functional uh, and, uh, and is rescued with appropriate treatment. So from the mouse studies then, uh, uh, we've Haim uh, uncovered an embryonic uh, brain growth and social behavior pathway uh, that included DVL, beta-catene, and brain 2 and TBR2 that resulted then in an increased production of TBR2 intermediate progenitors at a particular time during development. And the idea would be, of course, that when disheveled is low, when disheveled is normal, it would activate then beta-catenin. Beta-catenin would activate brain two. Brain two would suppress TBR2, and you'd have a normal number of, of intermediate progenitors. But when disheveled was lower, brain uh, uh, beta-catenin was lower. Brain two was lower, and one would then have increased TBR2 since the suppression was relieved. And so that seems like a transcriptional cascade that's working in the mouse. But of course, any of you have seen a mouse brain and, and a human brain, I don't think this is exactly to scale, but there are many differences included in that, besides the size, is the complex structure of the human brain, including the gyri and sulci. And uh, of course, there are also an increase uh, in the proportion of uh, various progenitor pools. In, in contrast to the mouse, where I told you the development was predominantly radial glia-driven, in the human, there's a new class of progenitors, the outer subventricular zone radioglial progenitors that are not attached to the apical surface but produce a number of the neurons uh, during mid-gestation in the human brain. And these are present in the mouse but a very, very low number. So really one can only study these in the human brain. Now we don't, other than people in California and maybe not anymore as well, we don't really have access to human fetal tissue to study this. Uh, it has been studied by Arnold Krikstein, among others, and so this has been confirmed in human tissue. So what can we do? Well, of course, the option that we have, which is what makes studying the brain with induced pluripotent stem cell technology so appealing, is that we can make such models from human uh, uh, diseased uh, in- individuals. And of course, you all know this technology, which was developed by Shinya Yamanaka now 15 years ago, skin cells or other cells from a patient, can be established in culture, reprogrammed into pluripotent cells, induced pluripotent stem cells that are just like uh, uh, ES cells for all intents and purposes. They can make a particular disease type for a disease model or test it for cell therapy. We're fortunate too that IPS cells in general uh, like to be made into neurons and neural tissue, so it makes it easy to use for models of human uh, neurogenetic diseases. So when I was still at UCSD, 
uh, Rusty and Allison and I collaborated with uh, Eric Corshane, who had a number of patients that had early brain overgrowth. And you can't reread this, but this is from the paper. Each of the individuals had autism by, by testing. They all had uh, early brain enlargement. And, uh, and so uh, if you looked at the MRIs from, a, uh, from all of these samples, the brains uh, and average were much larger in the autism samples in the control. So eight lines were established from autistic patients with early brain overgrowth and five controls. They were, they were named uh, cleverly with C for controls, with different words. Uh, and t- some people said, why do you use this lab jargon? Well, actually, it's just something that's actually pretty convenient. And all the autism lines uh, start with an A. So you guys can use the lab jargon to keep straight. I still do have trouble, though, saying, which, which is the cell line that has this phenotype? Anyway, so <laughs> what we were interested in, you know, Allison has been interested in these and has, and has done uh, direct neural differentiation, has found that these cells have very abnormal uh, networks from using multi-electrode arrays, and Rusty's lab with Chris Glass has just recently published a beautiful epigenetic study. But what we decided to do was focus on the NPC phenotype. So we took the AST lines and the control lines that, again, were, were made in IPSs and made neural progenitor cells. And then simply asked the question, did the cells proliferate differently? And to our um, surprise, but again, it was hypothesis-driven, so we were glad that we had this hypothesis, this is doubling time of the cells. So a larger number means a slower time of proliferation. All of the control lines, this is the average value, control lines are proliferating slower than the autism lines. And this is the average number, but if you take each of them individually, each of the autism lines proliferated faster than any of the individual control lines. So there's a clear proliferation phenotype, suggesting that at least in the patients that we're looking at, this early brain overgrown phenotypes is associated with IPS model NPCs that proliferate faster. Okay? Well, then we wanted to see if they were similar to the disheveled model, and, and it, to our surprise again, uh, we found that in fact the autism lines, the eight that we were studying, all had a decrease in basal uh, canonical Wnt activity using the top flash assay. Now, trying to rescue it with lithium chloride or cheer. Uh, this wouldn't rescue. So it's not a problem with the shovel. It's some overall abnormality with wind signaling. We're not, uh, you know, we're not clear about that, what that is at the moment. And the same thing was true for upstream using a ligand wind 3 a So there seemed to be abnormalities in uh, beta-catenin. There were also abnormalities in brain 2, just like the disheveled knockout mice. Brain 2 staining of the neural progenitor cells derived from the control were uh, obviously uh, a relatively high level, and in the uh, neural progenitors from the um, autism lines, that staining was reduced. TBR2 uh, was not expressed in these, uh, in these uh, two-dimensional cultures that we're talking about. We'll come back to that a little bit later. And uh, uh, overexpression of brain 2, uh, shown here by the, by the stained cells here, would rescue, also rescued the proliferation defect. So here's the untreated cells, or treated, uh, uh, transfected with uh, uh, empty vector. The autism cells proliferate faster, but if you overexpressed brain 2 in those cells, now they proliferate at the same rate. So again, suggesting that it's a brain 2, uh, 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 now it's a beta-catenin, brain 2 phenotype that's responsible for proliferation in this human model of autism. So, so there's some uh, really interesting similarities here. 
And so we've tried over the last few years to try to expand those studies. And included in that, uh, we're doing some mouse genetic studies. First of all, we have an, a number of different uh, back alleles where we can modify disheveled to focus on either disrupting the canonical Wnt or the uh, 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 PCP, the Wnt PCP pathway. And we're then trying to see if any of those rescue the social behavior phenotypes and the brain overgrowth defects. The second genetic studies, we're trying to see whether disheveled 2 is involved. Because disheveled 2, we have a conditional allele and we'll be able to be a little bit more uh, uh, temporarily, have temporal control over when we knock out disheveled 2. And it turns out from these experiments that I don't have time to tell you about them today, but we don't really have any uh, uh, from the allelic series that we have for the disheveled uh, 2 alleles. All of them seem to rescue the social behavior phenotype, and that might suggest there's a, a role for overexpressing any of the disheveled in correcting this phenotype. But also that disheveled 2 is involved in social phenotype as well in the 1-2 double mutant, so we're trying to study this a little bit more. We're doing genome editing to correct mutations that we found in the ASD lines. We're, we've done genome-wide RNA-seq and chip-seq studies uh, to look for genes and pathways regulated by beta-catene and BRAIN2 and TBR2. And I, and I don't have time to tell you about that right now, but we're collaborating with Rusty's lab. Again, as I told you, they did a nice epigenetic study and did ATAC-seq on all of these lines. So we're merging our uh, RNA-seq, chip-seq with the ATAC-seq. And in fact, we've done cheer rescue of, of, of these lines, slowing their proliferation, and we're looking to see what... Uh, uh, pathways are rescued, and those experiments are in progress because we just got the data from, from Rusty's lab now. As I said, by using the human lines, one can do drug and, and uh, small molecule screening, and we're just trying to see if there are any other pathways that are disrupted here, because even though we found a Wnt beta catene and brain to, uh, brain to TBR2 pathway, we don't think this is the only thing that's going on here, so we want to see if there are other drugs as well, and we're in the process of doing that. I really have nothing to say now. And we're using three-dimensional organoid models to study brain development, as I'm sure many of you are doing here. So in the interest of time, I really only have time to talk about the genome editing and um, the, um, a little bit of the organoids that work that we're doing uh, to follow up on these studies. Well, the, the first thing I, want to, I neglected to say so far was that we actually found some interesting mutations in three of the eight lines from, of, of the autistic individuals. One of the lines, ARCH, has a, a loss of function mutation in beta-catenin. And it's at, the, at um, uh, amino, acid 73, amino acid 73, which is in the, the third exon. It's a very early mutation, so we think it's likely to be a null mutation. And this has been seen in other autistic individuals, but mostly ones that have uh, microcephalic phenotype and intellectual disability. So this individual has uh, this uh, heterozygous loss of function mutation in, in uh, beta-catenin. Another individual for ASI has an a, a early loss of function mutation in frizzled 6, and that's at this, I, I'm sorry, 116, I think, amino acid. And that, uh, this uh, frizzles are six, seven transmembrane uh, G-coupled protein-like receptors. And so this mutation is in the extracellular domain, so unlikely to make a receptor. It might make something that interferes with, uh, with wind signaling at some level. We don't know that. However, uh, most likely it's also a null allele due, due to nonsense-mediated decay. So we have two lines, each of which has a mutation in canonical wind pathway members. And the third line is APEX. APEX has a, a, a missense mutation in P10. And the missense mutation is in 
one, one third, amino acid 135, I'm sorry, I have a little bit of trouble on the side, sideway looking at this. And I, all of you are aware of, of uh, P10's important role in growth proliferation. And what P10 does is work in the PI3 kinase pathway to uh, suppress the activity of AKT and then increase apoptosis and decrease cell survival and proliferation. It's a well-known pathway in cancer biology, but of course, mutations in individuals with autism and early brain overgrowth, about 5 to 6% of them have mutations in P10. Now, what's interesting is most of the autism-derived mutations in P10 are milder mutations. That is, if you have a complete loss of function mutation of P10, you generally have a cancer-prone phenotype like Cowden syndrome. But milder mutations, and these have all been assayed in yeast and other systems, uh, those are the ones that appear to be more associated with autism. So that would be consistent with, uh, with this uh, finding here. So we have these very interesting uh, mutations. Uh, of course, when you then have reduction in P10 activity, then you increase cell proliferation and decrease apoptosis. So the question then that we wanted to ask is, can we use these, uh, these lines to see if the WIND pathway and P10 pathway play a predominant uh, major role in regulating the proliferation. And so Xu Ai Fu, a graduate student in the lab, has been doing the following sets of experiments. And I know this is going to go forward, so I'm just going to put them all out there now rather than... <laughs> so what Xu Ai's uh, done is in each of the lines here, so these are the three lines that have the mutations in beta-catenin, frizzled 6, and P10. And our control lines here in green are wild-type in each of those loci. So what Chu is doing is taking the uh, Cas9 nickase activity, so it only makes single-strand breaks, surrounding the mutation sites in each of these, for each of these three mutations in these lines uh, uh, with the appropriate guide RNAs. And then using homologous recombination, correcting the mutation to the wild-type uh, residue, or in the control lines, introduce the mutation into the control lines into the same spot. So that has a couple of advantages doing it two ways. First of all, we're going to just test in an isogenic system. So in this line, we have two possibilities then. We'll have the mutation isogenic lines in the background of, the, of autism, or in the control uh, organism, we'll have the control in the, uh, in the mutant line. So is it the background? Is it the mutation itself? Or is it a combination of the two? So Shuai's had some success in a number of these ones. I'm going to tell you about one of the experiments now because he had an unexpected result that came from his targeting. So as you know, one can often have uh, larger effects when you're trying to be very specific in making some of these modifications. And what Shuai found, he tried to introduce in one of the control lines, CHAP, was introducing the mutation. And he found that one of his lines had a, a large uh, deletion. When he did the sequencing, it was obvious that he had this large deletion in this region here that uh, would likely then be a loss of function for uh, P10. And he found one that was heterozygous and one that was actually homozygous. And here's the proof that these two clones are missing P10. This is the P10 protein with two different antibodies. And in two of the lines, he seems to have a homozygous knockout of P10 itself in these lines. So he looked first then of whether there was a difference in proliferation. And this is preliminary data. He used ARCH rather than, um, than the line um, APEX that has the P10 mutation. But uh, ARCH itself proliferates rapidly. CHAP, the line that the mutation was introduced in, proliferates more slowly, again, in passages 5, 6, and 7, just like we saw earlier. 
But introduction of P10 knockout, now there's rap more rapid proliferation. So this mutation seems to have an effect in the control line. He's also, though, been able to introduce the P10 mutation in the same line, CHAP. Here's the heterozygous line, and here's Apex with the heterozygous mutation compared to the CHAP control. And so he's now introduced the heterozygous mutation, and what happens when he does the proliferation studies as well? Well, again, looking at CHAP, the P10 knockout, or the P10 induction line with just that point mutation, both of those uh, P10 mutant lines now proliferate more rapidly than the control line. And they're similar in proliferation to the arch line that has a beta-catena mutation. So this would suggest that, we're, that these may, P10 for sure would be a major effect. We're now testing whether the beta-catena and, and frizzled 6 uh, mutations have similarly important and uh, dominant functions. So finally, I wanted to end with um, some of the studies that we're doing with organoids. And I'm sure, as I said, many of you are using uh, uh, IPS models for brain studies or using organoids. And this is a study from uh, Yoshiki Sasai's lab, which is the protocol that we generally use because it's focused on the cerebral cortex. Uh, and here's the general protocol. I'm not going to go through it in detail in the interest of time. But two of the people in my lab who pioneer... Oh, let me just show for those of you who don't use organoids that one makes organoids from the iPS cells, and the organoids themselves are just balls of multiple ventricular zone-containing structures. And these structures contain proliferating zones that looks like the ventricular zone of a mouse. It has an apical polarity, just like there would be in a normal human or mouse brain with the apical surface. They produce neurons that are in the cortical plate outside of the ventricular zone. Uh, using several different markers of, uh, of uh, stable neurons. So it seems like a great system. And so two postdocs in my lab, first Marina Burstein when I was at UCSF, developed this um, uh, using a Lissencephaly model, and Luke Burry in my lab is doing the experiments with, uh, with the autism lines. And so I'll just, again, point out that in these organoids, when you look at detail at the ventricular surfaces, you have all the uh, proliferative... Uh, NPCs that we would like to study. So certainly we have the radioglial progenitors, intermediate progenitors, TBR2 positive cells. They make neurons, as shown by CTIP2 up here, and they make the outer subventricular zone markers hop, um, uh, marked by HOPX here in these organoids. So we can then study the role of autism uh, and other mutations in, the, um, in each of these progenitor populations, including HOPX, uh, positive uh, ORGs that can't be studied in the mouse, really. And so here's what the organoids look like. This is in a model of microcephaly, which was a lysencephaly line here, Miller-Deeker syndrome. And one of the things that's interesting about organoids is that you can use them generally for proliferative phenotypes. So if you study microcephaly, almost all microcephalic lines in models are smaller than a typically developing or normal line. And we've tried to do this with the autism lines, but we really haven't had any consistent phenotypes. And I think it's because there are multiple ventricular zones within those uh, organoids, so it's not been consistent, but we're still trying. But for microcephaly, it's quite good. And here's some examples of some of Marina's experiments where she's looked uh, at, uh, again, the Miller-Deeker lines versus wild type. And here you can see that the ventricular zone is very well formed with proliferating cells marked by KI67, the white cells or SOX2 positive cells reduced in the microcephalic lines with at least in some of the lines there's apoptosis. So you can really see a mechanism for the microcephaly here. And if you zoom in on the ventricular zones here, I would challenge anybody in the audience, 
I can tell you they're from organoids. But I challenge anybody in the audience, if I didn't tell you this, to say that this wasn't from a normal developing human or a normal developing mouse because it has very uh, good formed apical surface. Here's the, the DAPI staining to show all the nuclei in the ventricular zone. And not only that, the cells divide, undergo S phase right at the uh, ventricular surface, the apical surface. And here are cells marked by uh, phosphohistone H3, which are undergoing mitosis. And they're right at the apical surface, as you would expect. And so you can even use these to look at, uh, at uh, angle of, of division or anything else for the properties here as well. But you can also, of course, do uh, live imaging studies. And this is one of Marina's studies to show that, in fact, we get the behavior of the ORG population of cells. So going back for a minute, the ventricular zone radial glial cells divide at the apical surface, and they divide with, uh, with a vertical sort of cl- uh, cleavage plane. On the other hand, ORG divide in a horizontal uh, plane, and they don't attach to the apical surface. So as I show this movie, I want you to look at this. I think it's this cell right here. You have to look quickly because it jumps pretty well. So that cell is going to divide. And I'll tell you what it's going to do first. It will jump up, divide horizontally, and then stay there for a few minutes so you can marvel in what the cell did. So it jumps up, divides horizontally, and now moves away from each other, just as a typical ORG uh, uh, performs in uh, live uh, fetal brains as well. And you can show that that's an ORG cell by using markers specific for ORG cells uh, after you finish the movies there. So this is Marina's study, and it was beautiful. And she used that to show that in the Lissencephaly models that we have, there's a problem with the division of the ORG cells. I'm not going to talk about that now. And for those of you who didn't see that quick movie, there's a jump up, horizontal division, and then that's how they divide. Well, Luke's used these models, and he started to quantify some of the cells. Quantification in the organoids are a little bit difficult because there's a lot of heterogeneity, as anybody who's used them are aware. But what Luke did was just do a simple experiment that obviously takes him a long time. It's simple in concept, but difficult in execution. That is to take multiple organoids, multiple tissue sections from those organoids, and try to determine in the ventricular zone what the ratio of TBR2 to PAC6 cells are. PAC6 would mark the radioglial progenitors. So in the CHAP and the COVE control lines, here's the level of, uh, of that ratio here. Two of the lines, ARCH and SI, these are the ones that contain the Wnt pathway mutations, both have what appears to be an increased number of TBR2-positive cells. But APEX and AHOY, APEX has the P10 mutation, we're not seeing that change in TBR2. So this would suggest that there's a conservation in these two Wnt pathway mutation autism lines of this beta-catenin brain to TBR2 connection although we're not sure whether it's going to be present in the other lines as well. So again, we're using organoids. They resemble early cortical development, different types of progenitors present, and they're localized properly. There's appropriate production and timing of neuropopulations, and the ORG cells are present. Future, we're going to, as I said, try to look at size, proliferation rate of these progenitor subtypes, gene expression profiles, and we're going to do sulfate labeling to try to more accurately quantify the HOPX positive ORG and TBR2 positive IP uh, intermediate progenitor cells. I'll just show you how we're going to try to do this just for your interest. We don't really have any data to, to present about this, but what uh, Shuai uh, Fu and Luke Burry have done is to try to use a system in which they take 
and introduce this fusion gene, which would be a, a broadly expressing CAG promoter and a turbo RFP that's MCTAGged that has a stop floxed uh, cassette in there so it's not active, and inserted that into one of the uh, 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 safe harbor sites at chromosome 19. And then in a variety of different lines, they're taking uh, Cree that's driven by the TBR2 promoter, but in such a way the TBR2 isn't going to be influenced, so it doesn't have any influence itself. So it's introduced here with, uh, uh, with the appropriate uh, markers. So when Cree then is produced, it'll remove the, the stop site, and then any cell that originated from a TBR2 positive cell will be labeled in red. Same token, what these, uh, and so one can look at all the neurons that are made from TBR2 positive cells. Using the same sort of strategy in chromosome 22 safe harbor site, they're putting in a ZS green uh, flag tagged uh, cassette, also driven by a broadly active promoter that um, also is, is stopped by the stop flocks. And this is now, uh, rather than flocks, it's with a rock sequence. So they're introducing then DRI into uh, the HOPX promoter in the same way so that HOPX expression is maintained. And then when you relieve, when HOPX is expressed, those cells will be labeled in green. And so what they're trying to do then is to put these into each of the individual autism and, um, and control lines, as well as in the um, genome edited lines. And they'll be able to quantify then number of cells that are coming from those and whether those cells are going to be different as they often are from different progenitor pools. Likely they're different progenitor pools because the, the output is going to be different. So we'll have a tool then to use these. Now, I wish I could tell you that it's all working right now. It's not working right now because when we introduced those genes into the safe harbor sites, they were silenced. So we're putting them in again as a, um, uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, insulators, and I think that's going to work that way. But in any case, hopefully at some time in the near future, if I ever come back, hopefully not 10 years later, that I, I can tell you about those studies as well. You know, so in summary, I've told you about uh, conserved neuroprogenitor uh, phenotype in both human and mice uh, that have disrupted wind brain 2 TBR2 pathway, the DVL13 mice, and patient-derived neuroprogenitors. And there are lots of similarities between the two. And we're going to try to use those similarities and differences to see what the key features are. In, um, in the neuroprogenitor phenotypes, as well as hopefully have some insights into autism. And we have a lot of, pro, of, of collaborators. I've told you the people in my lab, for the most part, as I said, Heim Balanson is the main driver, but Justine, Chen, Luke, Wendy, and Shuai also use their data as well. Jeff Rosenfeld, uh, Nadav Ayatou from UCSF, and Jason Lurch from Toronto I mentioned. The IPS work was a collaboration with Rusty's lab and Allison's lab. Again, I want to point out Carol, Here's funding. Uh, something else is over there. Oh, and Eric Corshane, who had the initial patients. And I thank you very much, and thanks for letting me come back to San Diego. Hi, I'm wondering, uh, in your uh, disheveled mice or the uh, ASD IPS cell culture, do you see any defects in other cell types rather than the excitatory neuron lineage? Uh, so in the brains of the disheveled 1-3 mice, um, we haven't seen anything that's different. And of course, we look carefully at the one mice, the disheveled one mice over many years. I'm sure there are other abnormalities there. 
you know, I think that one of the things that's, that's really promising about the MRI studies is that it can reveal some of the organizational differences in, in the adult brain. So I think we can go back and study the different populations of cells and how they might interact. So I'm sure there's some differences at that level. But at the moment, other than the ones I've described, we haven't found anything different. And by the same token, at the moment, we haven't found any differences in the organoids uh, other than the markers that I, that I showed you. Great talk here. Um, regarding the mechanism uh, of the shell function, I wonder if you look at a, a SOX2 activity because the wind signaling, beta-catene in particular, has to evoke SOX2, as Rusty showed, from uh, neurody and other neural promoters. And also brain 2 has been known, uh, shown to cooperate with SOX2 in progenitor. So it's consistent with the increased activity, or I should say, uh, increased proliferation mm-hmm. yeah, of neural progenitors. They'll f- decrease SOX2 activity, yeah. So did you check SOX2? Well, we use that that as a marker. So we use SOX2 or uh, PAX6 as markers of those cells. We don't really see any quantitative differences in immunohistochemistry, but we haven't done any more quantitative studies. Right, because the level of SOX2 wouldn't predict it to be changed. It's the activity. Yeah, I didn't see any change in the the level of staining or the number of cells that were there in the SOX2 positive. I was curious as to whether the, the... it looks like you have an early increase in brain weight of the, the defective mice relative to um, normal fetus. Um, is that also seen in humans? As, is that accompanied by an increase in intracranial pressure? So in humans, it, it's difficult to study because you can't identify fetal autistic individuals for the most part unless it's a single gene mutation. But, um, uh, but, if, but most of the uh, brain weight changes occur postnatally in humans because even though there are more cells, the weight occurs because of the, prolifer- of the uh, elaboration of the arbors and things of that sort postnatally. Um, but that doesn't result in increased intracranial pressure. The, the brain is increased in size. The skull accommodates that. And, uh, and there doesn't seem to be generally a problem with, with uh, increased pressure. Um, Do you also see the same kind of proliferation in spinal cord? Or is this only a cortical phenomenon? We haven't looked in the spinal cord. It's a very interesting uh, point, but we haven't looked there as well. Yeah. As you know, some of the kids who have big brains have an enlarged glial population. Could Mm -hmm. you comment a little bit on what what have been going on with the astrocytes of the glia and Mm -hmm. and a lot of what you've observed? We haven't looked at that in the organoids because we don't really take them long enough to have development of of any of the glial populations. And in general, a lot of the studies there have been done uh, later on in life in individuals that have autism. And so whether it's a primary effect or something that's secondary to having too many neurons during early development is, you know, again, is unclear because it's hard to look at these brains prior to the diagnosis of autism. The diagnosis usually occurs at two or three years of age. So who knows what's happening in those earlier time points? And even in the mice that you look we, you reported earlier. We don't really on, see was... any differences in, in the glial populations in the mice. Uh, yeah, we don't really see that. Thank you again for your talk. Um, I wanted to get some more information about your drug screening effort um, to reduce NPC proliferation. Yes. You mentioned um, previously that um, CHIR, or CHIR, as you say, um, could actually rescue some of the social behavior, um, phenotypes that you notice. Have you, were you able to actually couple um, lithium chloride and CHIR and specifically the AKI cell line that, you, that actually has a mutation in WENT? 
So the experiment, we designed the experiment to look at a couple of different um, autism lines versus a couple of different control lines as our primary screen. And the ones that we used were, um, I believe it, it was one of the ones with the, uh, with the wind mutation. I don't remember it was the beta-catenin. I think it was more likely to be the frizzled because we wanted to make sure we could impact downstream of that, and we didn't want to mess with the beta-catenin. And then we used a line that didn't have any known mutations. And any lo- the primary screen was, if those two lines had their proliferation rescued without an effect on two of the control lines, then we went further to screen all the different lines. And we've come up with a few different compounds. And we haven't done anything further than this at the moment, but they're promising compounds. Some of them one might expect, uh, some we didn't expect. And so uh, Chen in the lab is, is going further on that now. I don't really have anything else to report. The next step is if we do find those, we'll use them on the disheveled model to see if they rescue that phenotype as well. So if any uh, other questions, let's thank Tony for the wonderful seminar. Thank you.